The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. Jesus often used natural examples to illustrate spiritual truths. I've had this strong conviction throughout my ministry that the Lord Jesus Christ never played hide the ball. He didn't give us things that were too complicated for us to understand. Whenever we don't understand it, it's not a problem with the example, it's a problem with us. It's not a problem with what Jesus decided to use or chose to use at that time. It's a problem with our understanding of what's going on. He used uh, agrarian examples, farming examples that people would understand in that day. He used uh, examples of uh, seamanship that people would understand in that day. Throughout the Word of God, throughout the New Testament, there are several different terms used for regeneration, to describe regeneration or to characterize it. But here he is talking to a man named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews, a rabbi, who, who he, is trying, he is explaining to him uh, about the new birth. And he's using terms that this man would understand to describe the new birth. And I believe he's using terms that we need to understand and that, we, that help us to get what the new birth is all about. So here in the book of John, in the third chapter, let's begin reading in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Now here in these eight verses, Jesus uses three terms to describe the new birth. He refers us to the womb. He refers us to water. And he refers us to the wind. And that's what I want to preach on tonight is the womb, the water, and the wind. These three terms are terms that Jesus uh, uh, appropriated and put into place here to describe what we call the new birth or what we call regeneration. And there's a reason he did that. And these terms are very appropriate to describe it. And Nicodemus would have understood these. And you and I need to understand what these terms mean. So first, let's look at them. Let's look at the, 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 the use of the, the womb as an example of the new birth. See, now Jesus, there's a reason, as I said, he picks these terms. It's just like when he says we're dead in trespasses and in sins. You say, you ask the question, how dead are the dead? Well, the dead are all dead. <laughs> the dead are dead all over like the old dog rover, okay? Wow. The, the dead are dead. There's no degrees of deadness. There's... There's no degrees of being dead in trespasses and sins. You either are dead in sins or you are alive in Christ. There's no two places there. 
And the reason the Lord used that term is because He knew the people of that day, and indeed us, we ourselves, ought to understand what dead means. We understand, for example, that when someone's dead, he doesn't need a doctor. When someone's dead, he doesn't need healing. When someone's dead, he needs life. He can't. Now, I'm not talking about someone who could be resuscitated. Someone who could still be resuscitated is not fully dead. He can still right. be resuscitated. But a dead man needs a resurrection, not resuscitation, Amen. you see. Well, here he uses that same idea in, in telling us uh, what it means to be born again. So first he uses the womb as an example, as a term to describe the new birth. So let's, let's look at that for just a minute. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again. The very term means, uh, refers us to the natural birth, does it not? It makes us think of being born in nature. He says, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. By the way, this is not some academic exercise. This means something. Notice what he said. This is a condition precedent to any person seeing, understanding, grasping anything about the kingdom of God. He said, if you're not born again, you can't see it. And that word see doesn't just mean see with the natural eyes because truly the kingdom of God is a spiritual thing. That's right. The kingdom of God is within us. You know, he said, my, my, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my, were my servants would fight, okay? It's a spiritual thing. It's something spiritual that must be grasped. The idea here is that you can't, you know, you know when you get an idea and you say, ah, oh, I see it. You're doing a calculus. I, I didn't ever get very far in that. Let's just say you're doing an addition problem, okay? That was, about, that was about as good as I could get. An addition problem or division problem, and then you finally see how it's done. You say, I see it. I see it. That's the idea here. In fact, that Greek word there is the word that was used. Uh, uh, it's the, the word that uh, Archimedes, the, the great uh, mathematician in, in, uh, in Greece, who was, he was lounging, he was, he was trying to figure out a problem. He was, he was lounging naked in the public baths there, and it came to him, and he got it. And he jumped up, and he ran through the streets naked, shouting, Eureka! <laughs> Eureka! Or, that literally means, I have seen it. I have seen it. I've got it, in other words. That's the word here, you see. So this is a very important practical matter. It's important to understand that this new birth, this being born again, is, is a condition precedent to seeing or participating in any way in the kingdom of God. So, let's look at the womb. This idea of being born again referred Nicodemus, at least, to the natural birth, did he not? Nicodemus, the first vision he had in his mind was, so I've got to enter back into my mother's womb and be born? <laughs> so he, he's, you know, Jesus... As I said, he knows what he's doing. He knew this would trigger some images. These word pictures would trigger some images in Nicodemus's mind and make him see some things that were important. So, so obviously Nicodemus was only thinking in natural terms. But let's look at, you know, when Jesus used a natural event to describe or to analogize to a spiritual matter, the natural event had carried some lessons with it. And, and of course, the natural event had to be had to be true. It had to be something that was accurate. Right. And, and because it was, then the spiritual concept could be understood better. So first of all, let's look at this. What about the natural birth? <clears throat> well, a natural birth happens without any action or will 
of the child that's being born, does it not? (laughs) Isn't that the way it works? What did you do to get born? At what point did you decide, I think I'm going to be born today? Uh, What action was required of you in order for you to come forth from your mother's womb? Of course, the answer to that is clearly nothing. Nothing. It's interesting that 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 describes the new birth or that one who's been born again as a new creature. He says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Notice that use of that term creature. That literally means something that has been created. Right. Something that's been created. Now I want to ask you something. What role did Adam play in the creation of this universe or this world or even himself? What role did he play? I think you know the answer to that. He had no role. The new creature spiritually has no more role in his own spiritual creation than Adam had any role in the original creation. If you want to know how much role Adam had or anybody else had in this creation, the physical creation, just go back to Job, the 38th chapter. You know, there was a time in Job's life when he made the statement, I wish God would come on the scene and I just want to lay out my case before him. I want to ask him some questions. (laughs) I want to ask God some questions. Me and God, we we got some dealings to do. And then when God finally appeared, it was God asking the questions. If I count it right, it's 77 questions that he asked Job that Job couldn't answer. In fact, it was so bad that Job confessed at one point in the middle of God's questioning. He said, you know, I've, I've spoken once, yea, twice, but now I'm going to lay my hand on my mouth. <laughs> I think, I think that uh, that's where you and I would be if God showed up. Where were you? know, what he asked, he said, where were you, Job? When I laid out this creation, he said, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I said, here is as far as you can come, ocean, and no further? Job said nothing. You know why Job said nothing? Because he wasn't there. And he had nothing to do with it. Sometimes we need to be reminded who we really are. Sometimes we forget, don't we? We think, well, you know, me and Jesus, we got a good thing going. (laughs) You know that, that song? Uh, I've always liked the song, but the song isn't talking about Armenian doctrine, I promise, but it's actually a pretty decent song. But, but that idea that most people have that it's me and Jesus that, that, that comprise our eternal salvation, beloved, we need to be dissuaded of that idea. Amen. Yeah, me and Jesus had a thing going. The thing that we had going was I did all the sinning and he did all the saving. Right. <laughs> That's the, only, that's the only relation that I had with Jesus. That's the only work I did with Jesus, if you want to call it. It wasn't working with him. It was working against him. See, the natural birth happens without any action or will on the part of the child being born. Over in the ninth chapter of Romans, Paul clearly sets this forth in talking about the doctrine of election using Jacob and Esau as an example representing the elect of God and the non-elect of God. And he starts out in verse 11 saying, the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Now let me just stop you there and say, God is making it plain here what he's talking about. And I don't think I have to ask you to answer this question out loud, but what is he talking about? He's talking about election. (laughs) 
Because he said, this is the purpose of here. The purpose of God according to election is what I'm talking about right now. And then he said, it was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Speaking here, using Jacob and Esau as a representation of those those elect children of God that he loved from before the foundation of the world, as opposed to the rest of the posterity of Adam that was going along its way to hell justly. By the way, if you ever have a problem with the doctrine of election, you ever have a problem, just ask one question. Is there anyone in hell that does not deserve it? Is there any, in fact, let me just dissuade you of any righteousness on your part or my part. We deserve it. We deserve it. Everyone deserves it. And because God saved some, praise God, he did. And I'll tell you, this is what it's all about right here. Verse 13 or verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. That's the objection that often comes up when talking about the doctrine of election. That is, it just wouldn't be right. Well, first of all, if you're accusing God of unrighteousness, you don't understand the nature of God. God is always righteous. And, and God can do anything He does, whether you understand it or whether you don't. It doesn't matter if you understand the doctrine of election. or If it's in the Scripture and He says He did it, then God did it right. God did it right. But here's the other side of that coin. You're missing the point. If you think God is being unrighteous in, in, cho- in saving His people and choosing His people and saving them from their sins. Because you see, the doctrine of election is not about, not about the, 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 the wrath of God. No. We're not talking about some kind of double predestination here. Mm-hmm. We only believe in the predestination of God's people to be conformed to the image of His Son. Amen. All the others going to hell, they didn't need God's help getting there. Right. We didn't need God's help getting there, but we needed all of God's grace to get us out of there. Amen. And notice here what He said. This is what election's all about. Verse 15, He saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I realize that among some preachers among us in the past, also among the independent Baptists, not just primitive Baptists, but some that I grew up under and, and, and knew of and have heard of since, have preached the doctrine of election in a harsh way, somehow making it into some kind of mean doctrine, mm-hmm. some kind of harshness. Coming. <clears throat> I, hope I, I hope you never hear an, an ounce of harshness or meanness coming from me when I talk about the doctrine of election. Because I want to tell you, it's the sweetest, most compassionate, most glorious, most life-saving, most merciful doctrine that there's ever been. Amen. There's not a, there's not a, 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 a novel out there about good deeds and good people. There's not, there's not a work of literature out there anywhere. There's not another philosophy of man out there that will touch the doctrine of election. Amen. Because it's about God having compassion and mercy upon Adam's race, which otherwise all would have gone merrily on their way to hell. You know, we're not we're not reluctantly going on our way to hell. Right. You know, we you know Adam uh, Eve didn't just say, "Oh well, I guess I really don't want to, but I'll eat the fruit." No, she gladly ate it, and Adam gladly ate it right after her. And from that point forward, we're born sinners, and we gladly sin. 
there is pleasure in sin for a season, and, and, and I'm so sorry to tell you, we all seek it out from time to time. Yeah. And willingly. But God had mercy. Oh, I'm so thankful for that. Amen. He saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, here's verse 16 is what I really came here for. Look at verse 16. We're talking about how the natural birth does not happen according to the will of the child being born. He said, so then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Isn't that glorious? See, Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said it's a new birth. He knew that would trigger in our minds, oh, okay, so it's kind of like the natural birth. Well, what happens in the natural birth? The child has no part in it other than being born. (laughs) The child has no act or will to exercise in the new birth, in, in, the, old, in the natural birth, and, and it certainly is the same way in the, in the new birth. Okay, another point about the womb is that the natural birth happens without any hindrance from the child being born. You know, we're told in the world today that uh, the Lord is trying, the Holy Spirit is trying to get you born again if you let Him, you know, and that there are those that can hold up this new birth. Now, certainly, those who are children of God can resist the Holy Spirit. You know, I've resisted him, unfortunately, too often. But we're talking about something different than the child who's already born who is not living the way they ought to live. We're talking about one who is dead in sins, one who has no spiritual wiggle in him, as we've said before. That child can't hinder the birth. The, The natural birth is not hindered by any act of the child. You ever heard of any child that said to his mother, said, well, you know, I, it's time to be born, but I'm not ready. I refuse to be born. <laughs> you, ever, you, ever, you ever heard of that? That's, that, that's foolishness because it doesn't, there's no such case in the medical histories, okay? Now, now I want to say this, and I want to make sure I thread the needle as best I can here. We are born without our will but not necessarily against our will, okay? You understand what I'm saying? Our will plays no part in being born, but, but those that are born are not against the fact that they've been born, if you see what I'm saying. In Psalm 110 and verse 3, we're told, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In other words, when the power of God is exercised in the new birth, his children are willing. I've never run into anybody that came up to me and said, Preacher, I've got the worst case of being born again, and I don't know what to do about it. I, I never heard anybody say, I know I'm going to heaven. I've got eternal salvation. What can I do to get rid of it? No, you don't find that because the child of God is willing. The child of God is made willing by the power of God. That doesn't mean his will is exercised in order to get there, but it means that when he's born apart from his own will, he is made willing in the day of the power of God. Amen. In the sixth chapter of John, this idea here is that no child can hinder his own natural birth, neither can any child of God hinder his own spiritual birth. Notice in the sixth chapter of John, in verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Now, there's a whole lot of concepts here that need to be broken down. I don't have time for all of them, but let me just say this. First of all, there is a category of people of which every single one of them will be 
found in this condition. And that category of people is all that the Father gives Jesus. Well, that begs the question of, what has God given him a people? Well, the answer is clear from here. God obviously has given his son a people. You know, this is not all that exercise their will or all that do the right things or all that live in the right way. All that the Father giveth me shall. I love that word. I love that word. Shall come to me. And by the way, in case you're worried about it, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Now what's he talking about here? I believe here is a reference to this new birth. This new birth. Every single one of God's children that were given to him in the covenant of grace before the foundation of the world will come to him in the new birth. They will be born again, you see. And by the way, they won't get unborn. Right. You ever heard of a child being unborn? I hadn't heard of that in a natural sense. It doesn't happen in a spiritual sense either. Now, verse 44 explains something else about this coming to him. No man can come to me. Except, there's an exception here. Here's the exception. Except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day. So notice what we've got here. We've got all that the Father gives him coming to him. All of them will be born again. They can't come to him on their own. No man can come unto me. Right. And by the way, just in case you're worried about those people that are trying to come to him but can't because Jesus won't let them. Right. Jesus, sure. Jesus said over in the fifth chapter in the 40th verse, he said, ye will not come unto me that you might have eternal life. You know, that's not an offer, Brother Joe. That's an indictment. That's an indictment. That's what we're in. That's a condition. The natural man, 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us about that. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. See, that's the state we're in when we're dead. We, we wouldn't, as Brother Mike Goins, I keep quoting him, I'm going to keep quoting him. One of these days I'm going to forget he said it, and I'm gonna, y'all going to think I said it, but I didn't. It's Brother Mike Goins. Remember, it's on tape here. It's Brother Mike Goins. We're in such a condition that we would not come to him if we could, and we could not come to him if we would. You see, no man can come unto me except the Father which has sent me draw. And praise God for that exception. God will draw his children. But the natural birth happens without any hindrance from the child being born. You see, in the right time, at the time appointed by God, that child of God who was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world and for whom Jesus died will be born again, mm -hmm. apart from the exercise of their will. Notice something else about the birth. The natural birth happens before evidence of life appears. Correct? A baby doesn't cry to get born. A baby cries because he's been born. A baby doesn't cry to get life. He doesn't move to get life. He doesn't reach out for his mother's breast to get life. He does all that because he has life. Amen. That kind of... That, that, that's the same idea that I've told you about many times. Brother, Brother Spann, Brother Raymond Spann, my pastor for many years, uh, put it out here like this. He had heard it from, I think, his grandfather. He said that burden of sin that people talk about, and there is a burden of sin. There is conviction of sin, beloved. But he said it's like this. The burden of sin is as if you took a thousand pound weight and placed it on the chest of a dead man. 
You put that weight on the chest of a dead man, the dead man won't say anything. He won't feel anything. Right. He won't respond to anything because he's dead, right? But you take that same thousand pound weight and you put it on a live man's chest, he'll start squealing. <laughs> he'll, start, he'll start calling out. There'll be some repercussions. He will feel that. And that kind of puts Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28 in a little different perspective, doesn't it? In Matthew chapter 11, you know, we don't need to abdicate, beloved, any scriptures to the world. These are not worldly scriptures or denominational world scriptures. These are primitive Baptist scriptures, okay? They're Bible scriptures, I should say. You know, when I say they're primitive Baptist scriptures, I don't mean we have an appropriation on them. I just mean that we ought to be using them too. They're they're ours. Come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus said that, but he didn't say it to a dead alien sinner. He said it to one who is laboring. He said it to one who is heavy laden. He didn't say, come to me if you're laboring and heavy laden and I'll give you eternal life. He said, come to me if you're laboring under the heavy burden of sin that you feel only because you've been born again because a baby doesn't cry till he's born. (laughs) Then I'll give you rest from that labor. You know how I'll give you rest? I will give you rest by showing you that you have no more works to do to get to heaven. That I did it all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. You see, the natural birth happens before Evidence of life appears. Okay? So Jesus used the womb as one example, uh, or as one term to describe the new birth. What about verse 5? Verse 5 of John chapter 3, he says, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Again, remember here, In this passage, as in all the times that he's speaking, he's using terminology that his audience would understand. Nicodemus was a man learned in in the scriptures. He was a leader of the Jews. And Nicodemus would have understood, and we need to understand, that the Holy Spirit was often symbolized by water in the Old Testament. For example, and by the way, he had just used the term in verse 3, except a man be born again. Literally, that means from above. If you have a center column Bible like I do, that's what it says. There's a note there that says, from above. See, that's pointing us already to the fact that the new birth is something that the Holy Spirit brings. Over in Isaiah chapter 44, we'll just look there first. In verse, uh, verse 1, he says, Hear, Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen, thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Now look at verse 3. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. Here he's using water and the spirit interchangeably. He's using them as an example there. Over in Ezekiel chapter 36. Look with me over there for just a minute. Over This is even better, even clearer reference here. In Ezekiel chapter 36 in verse 25, uh, God speaking through Ezekiel here says, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your 
idols will I cleanse you. What's he talking about here? He makes it pretty plain in the next verse. A new heart also will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. Right here in the Old Testament. He's used water and the Holy Spirit as an example of each other. And that's what he's using here. He's saying, Nicodemus, it's like the water. It's the spirit is like the water that I talked about in the Old Testament. The refreshing new uh, uh, spirit that I will pour out upon you. Oh, he's, he's telling him some precious truths. And we need to grasp them too, beloved. Amen. He says, except a man be born of water and of the spirit. And by the way, the word and there also is in Thayer's Greek lexicon. It, it, it defines it this way. It marks something added to what has already been said. Or that of which something already said holds good. Strong's call, calls this uh, Greek verb, Greek uh, word, a primary particle having a copulative or connecting and sometimes also a cumulative force. It can be used as and or also or even or so then or to. In other words, except a man be born of water, and that word and can also be even or also the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He's describing the same thing. Jesus used water elsewhere to symbol the Spirit, did he not? Just a, just a chapter over, he told a woman at a well. In chapter 4, in verse 13, Whosoever drinketh this water, pointing to the water in the well, shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. In other words, he's not talking about that you're going to literally have a well of H2O in your heart. You're going to, that would be deadly, okay? That would be a problem you'd have to have surgery for. What he's talking about is that he's going to have the water of the Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit itself will be welling up inside you. And in case that's not clear enough, Jesus over in the 7th chapter of John, in the 37th verse, he says, In the last day... That great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And this and he spake of, according to verse 39, of the Spirit. This he spake of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. See, right there, he's using him. He's using water. Uh, to typify the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about here. You know, think about, think about water. What does water do? What do you need when you're nasty and dirty and you've been outside working? You need to go inside and take a oil bath no. or a gasoline bath? No. Well, sometimes I do. Sometimes stuff I get on me, I can't get off without a little gasoline. But seriously, um, you need to come in and get a shower, right? That pure, clean water. That's what water does. It cleans you. You know what the Holy Spirit does? It cleanses. Amen. It cleanses. You know what else you can do with water? You can pour it. You can pour it. Joel tells us in the second chapter that there's going to be a time when he'll pour out his Spirit upon all flesh. Oh, this, this Holy Spirit, this water that he's talking about is such a sweet... Uh, terminology to use in describing the new birth. And then finally, we bring this to a close. What about the wind? Remember what he said in John the third chapter? First of all, in verse seven, he makes a very important statement that we need to never forget. Marvel not, or verse six, I'm sorry. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. 
And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. We, we don't believe in natural evolution here at this church. No. We don't believe that we evolved from apes or that in some of the primordial goo over there billions of years ago, life evolved somehow. We don't believe in that. There's a lot of people that teach it. We don't believe that. Most churches don't believe that, in the, at least in the evangelical world. Okay, But too many churches teach some form of spiritual evolution. While they reject physical or natural evolution, they teach spiritual evolution that somehow that which is flesh can become spirit or that which is flesh can somehow lay hold upon the spirit. But Jesus said that which is born of the flesh is flesh. So the birth of the flesh yields only flesh, but the only way you get spirit is to be born that way. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. He said, marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. And here he starts using the wind to describe the new birth. By the way, the wind is often used to describe the Spirit of God. In fact, the first time we read about the Spirit of God in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, it says the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. That's the Hebrew word ruach, which also is a Hebrew word for wind. So once again, he's using a term that Nicodemus would have understood. Notice what it says. It blows where it wishes. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. No preacher can harness the Spirit of God any more than any meteorologist can harness the wind. When they're on TV forecasting the tornadoes, they're not directing the tornadoes. They're just telling us where they see them going. You know what a preacher can do? A preacher can tell you what's happened to you. Preacher can see the results, but he can't cause it to happen. No man can harness the wind. And yet that's how Jesus describes the new birth. Now, there are men who will tell you, there are places you can go, they'll tell you if you do A, B, and C, you follow steps one, two, and three, you pray this prayer, you, you, you take this step, you do this act, whatever it may be, then you have harnessed the Spirit because the Spirit will come. Right, Beloved, those things don't have anything to do to harnessing the Spirit of God any more than anybody can harness the wind. It blows where it wishes. But notice also that it causes a stir. <laughs> it causes a stir. It said you, can tell, you can't tell whence it cometh or whither it goeth, but you hear the sound thereof. Beloved, we don't believe in a hollow log theory of the new birth. You know, that was a theory that went around, I understand, many years ago among the primitive Baptists that the Holy Spirit, the new birth, is like a rabbit running through a hollow log. It just passes through and doesn't leave any results. Beloved, we don't believe in that. <laughs> we don't believe that at all. We believe there is a difference of you, uh, uh, before, uh, before you're born again and after you're born again. There's a difference between you as a born-again child of God and one who's not. Now, you may not know everything you need to know. You may not understand everything you need to understand. You may not believe everything you need to believe, but there's a difference in your life. Yeah. I always think about dear Elder Martin Anyani and how that he told the story of his conversion, ultimately, but it started out where he was not interested at all. He didn't have any problem laying out on the weekends drunk and running around doing things he shouldn't be doing and being mean to his wife and family and neglecting them. Didn't bother him at all. And then one day it did. 
One day it did. One day he couldn't do it anymore without feeling convicted about it. And, and he couldn't understand what had happened to him until finally he, he heard the gospel message preached. He said, that's what's happened to me. I've been born again. Amen. <laughs> you see, it left a mark on him. Over in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, we read Paul describing the new birth this way. You hath he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Now notice, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of God, wrath even as others. I said this yesterday and I'll say it again. I'm thankful it didn't say we were children of wrath. It said we by nature were. We had the same nature, but praise God, if you've ever been a child of God, you've always been a child of God. <laughs> so thankful for that. Notice there, though, where we were. This is how we were. We were just like everyone else in the world. We were just happy as we could be, fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, walking according to the prince of the power of the air, living like the children of disobedience. But notice What's happened after the quickening? But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace, you're saved. Notice that what happened to us wasn't but me. Right. It was but God. Amen. But I did something but the preacher did something, but the church did something, but somebody else prayed, somebody else. No, beloved, the new birth is not of, of, of the flesh or the will of the flesh, not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Amen. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love. For, and notice this. <laughs> he didn't quicken us once we got good enough. He didn't quicken us once we took the proper steps. He didn't quicken us once we prayed the proper prayer. He quickened us even when we were dead in sin. Thank you. Amen. Isn't that glorious? I tell you, beloved, I'm so thankful he didn't put the burden on me that those Judaizing missionaries put on those new Christians down there in Acts 15. So you gotta be circle. Yeah, it's not enough that you You've been born again and believe it's, it's that you now have to keep be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. No, that's a yoke that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. But notice what happened. He hath raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So let me leave it with you here like this. The womb, the water, and the wind describe what happens in the new birth. And in no case does it have any involvement from your eye. And he says finally, so is everyone that is born in the Spirit. So that tells me something important there, that this new birth occurs in exactly the same way in every single child of God. That's right. So if we can find one example of one person who was born again, apart from believing the gospel, apart from hearing the word, apart from the efforts of men, apart from any, 
anything like that, then we can say everyone is born that way. You could talk about the thief on the cross. You could talk about Paul on the road to Damascus, neither of whom were searching for Christ. But the best example, beloved, is found in the first chapter of Luke. I won't turn there, but you can. You read about a young child in the womb, in the womb of Elizabeth, his mother. And when he came into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was still in the womb of his mother Mary, he leaped in her womb for joy. You know what joy is? Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. That means it is, comes only by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God brings joy. Those who aren't born again don't feel the joy of the Spirit. They, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness unto him. But that little baby in the womb felt the joy of the Spirit. You know why? Because he was born again right there. You know what that tells me? Every single child of God, every single elect child of God who was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world are going to be born again in the same way by the direct operation of the Holy Spirit and not by the efforts or means of men. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.